We have an exciting partnership to announce before we get into today's Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt has been asked to join Reads Across America Radio, a 24-7 internet radio station where you can listen to veteran stories 24-7. Uh, you can find that on the iHeartRadio app. You can also find it on their website, readsacrossamerica.org. The Scuttlebutt will be featured Friday nights at 9 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. If you don't know anything about Reads Across America, they're an incredible organization, all dedicated to honoring veterans uh, and, and those who uh, gave all in service to our country. Check out the Scuttlebutt on their radio station and all the other programs that they have on their 24-7 radio station, again, on iHeartRadio app or readsacrossamerica.org. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the VBC on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. Org. You can hear from my voice. I'm dealing with a bit of a head cold. Uh, that does extend into uh, the actual episode today. I feel bad for Emily. She had to deal with my sort of nasal voice. Uh, but uh, I'll I'll play with the hand that I'm dealt here. Um, our guest will be Emily Bleeker, the author of When We Were Enemies. Uh, Emily is the best-selling author of six other novels. Combined, her books have reached a total of two million readers. She is a two-time Whitney Award finalist, as well as being on the Amazon charts and Wall Street Journal bestseller lists. Uh, we have a really great conversation, Emily and I. We dive really heavy into her past. She went through something quite traumatic uh, at, an, at a, a younger age uh, that sort of helped make her make the decision to become an author. She found passion and a, a life career that she wanted to pursue in that. And When We Were Enemies is her most recent novel. You might be asking, why have a historical fiction novelist uh, come on to a veteran podcast? Uh, well, one of the main themes of When We Were Enemies is the Italian POW camp that was in Indiana during World War II. Um, as this book deals in dual timelines, one in the present, one back at that time, uh, you'll find out more as you listen to the podcast. Uh, but incredible novel and an incredible person. I hope that you go down to the links, purchase the book, uh, and enjoy this book as much as I did. Um, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. You can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, uh, at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any thoughts, comments, questions, uh, or ideas for upcoming scuttlebutts. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Enjoy the show. Joining me now is the author, Emily Bleeker of When We Were Enemies. Uh, so excited to have you join the podcast today, Emily. Thank you for being a part of the Scuttlebutt. I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, I am a, let's see, this is my seventh book. So I've been writing for eight or nine years now. Um, so I, it's my job, my passion. I love it. I also am a mom. I have four kids and um, I also do improv on the side. This is awesome because uh, the Scuttlebutt listeners know that I have a background in acting. And that was one of the first things that popped out in your bio when I read it. I was like, improv, awesome. Because that's yep. how I started. Um, my first question is maybe just like a, a, like a personal question because you say you have four kids. I have two kids. I barely have time to think my own thoughts. How have you been able to write so many wonderful books in the span, in such a short time span, starting in with Wreckage in what, 2015? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I actually, so Wreckage, I took three and a half years to write. So like there's kind of a long story that I'll, I'll condense down, but I had cancer in my 20s. And then I was given a 30% chance of turning 30. And so when I did, I was like, oh, look, I got 
all of these years back, you know, like a hundred years ago, those would have been gone. And so I make goals for myself. And one of my goals out of about five goals was to write a, a book. And I didn't think it would get published, but I started when I turned 30, I had a little baby. I would write while I was nursing one-handed, you know, cause I had three little boys at the same time who were just running all over the place. But that was the only time they knew they couldn't bother me was while I was nursing. So it actually worked out really well. Um, but I, I continued doing that even after the baby grew into a toddler and it took me three and a half years to get wreckage written. So it was really after wreckage became popular and successful that I was like, I think this is my new job, you know? <laughs> so it, and I've always had stories in my head, like always they, I think that's actually what makes somebody a writer is just having those stories that reside in your head that you want to think through, write down, share with people. And so really it's just more about finding the time to do that. But my, my brain, my body, my heart already wants to do that. So um, most of it's just setting boundaries and letting them know, like, this is my job. It doesn't look like it's my job because I'm sitting on the couch on my computer, but I swear it's my job. <laughs> and you have to practice it. You can't, you can't just, you know, I'll write on Monday sometime, but it's like in a daily thing, right? Well, especially when you have deadlines, like my last book, I wrote this, the my eighth one, which comes out next year, I wrote it in nine months, you know, wow. so like it is, it can be an intense process. And that one goes, it spans six decades. So it's not just the writing, it's the research, you know, then there's yeah. editing. And so it is, it's a, and then you have all of your other books that you're still promoting. You're still just trying to stay active online. It is a delicate balance. You've got a lot going on there. Can you talk a bit about, you sort of mentioned the cancer in your twenties, you had to grow up very quickly at that point. Did that help your writing out sort of having to mature very fast at, a, at an earlier, you know, uh, age? Yeah, I, you know, I didn't think that it was um, something that was a positive, obviously, but I've come to find in my life that like some of the hardest things that I go through end up being those refining moments that have made me stronger and have made me focus in on what's more important in life, what I really, really want in life. And cancer ended up being one of those things where it really was this insane gratitude that I had once I was out of the, you know, the throes of it that I was like, wow, I was given a gift and I better do something with this, you know? So I think it helped me grow up. I, I already, I, I already feel like I had two kids by then too, when I was diagnosed with cancer. So mm -hmm. I think that helped me mature a whole lot too, but, um, but it really did just kind of give me focus in life about not wasting time anymore. Does it make you fear anything else a lot less? Uh, actually, yeah. Like everything, just every time I, I see people be afraid of getting older or being like, oh, I'm actually 20 or whatever, when they're 50 or, you know, and for me, every birthday, I'm like, yes, <laughs> like I got one. <laughs> like, yeah. like it, I, I feel grateful and blessed to have the time that I have. So it definitely, it doesn't make me unafraid of like loss or of sickness or illness. Like it, it doesn't make me particularly overwhelmingly afraid. It just makes me realize that there are 
going to be those things that I'm going to have to face head on and I'm going to have to go through them, whatever they are, you know, like Mm -hmm. you just have to keep going. I think that's the lesson it taught me is like, just keep going. I know we're here to talk about when we were enemies, but if we dive back a bit to to wreckage uh, and and sort of building upon that last question, uh, how did those three years of building wreckage and everything that you were going through uh, sort of funnel into creating that? Because there's, as you said, like there's a lot of different stories going on in your head. How do you focus them all and tune them all to be that particular story? Yeah, that first one, it's interesting. I actually started writing a different book first and I had a friend who was writing too and we would send each other chapters and I could tell she was not into the other book I was writing. And then I had the idea for Wreckage and I wrote the first chapter and I sent it to her and she was like, write this book. And I was like, okay, I'll write this. Like, uh, so that, that was a good moment of me just committing to it. Like, this is the one I'm going to write. It was escapism though, even though it's an intense book, it's about people being on a Island, you know, like they've crashed, they're on an Island. Um, so it really was away from, a reality, but there are definitely themes in there. She has two young sons that think she's dead at home, you know, because she's not stranded on an island. And there definitely was some processing of that that happened on the page of like what happens when you leave your family behind, you know, when yeah. they they go on with life without you. Um, and then my next book, When I'm Gone, was literally about a woman who died and then wrote letters to her family before she died. And then she arranged for them to be delivered to her widower. And it's funny, I after I had cancer for a while, I couldn't read or watch or talk about cancer very much. Like it really, it brought it all back up, you know? Um, but then I wrote a book about it <laughs> and I was shocked that I decided to do that, but it ended up being a really good tool of like, of of processing it even more, even though I didn't intend to, you know, and that's actually, I get contacted about that book constantly, even now, just about the themes of loss, of grief, you know, all of those kinds of things. Uh, You know, it's interesting with the Veterans Breakfast Club, we talk a lot about how the veterans, if they come home, not only just sharing their stories, but writing their stories down, and many of them have gone on to write books, not necessarily looking for uh, sales, but just that sort of personal, I need to get this story out and on the page. Is that sort of how you feel about that second novel is just like being able to pour out a bit of your soul into that? Yeah, it is this processing, you know, and I... I didn't, I've kind of gotten into like uh, reading a lot of books about how our brains work. And I just read like two years ago, I read Body Keeps the Score and it was so incredibly enlightening to me. I'm like, now I understand why I was at a place of fearfulness before I wrote it down and went through really to the end. Uh, to the very end of what could have happened to me, which was I would have been gone, you know, and played out that whole experience really viscerally and then was able to see that everything would be okay on the other side, you know, and Mm -hmm. I, I understood after reading, you know, that book that I'm like, oh my gosh, I just 100% took this traumatic event, put it on paper, processed it and got to the other side of it. And that's why I'm able to talk about it now, you know, but I had no idea that's what I was doing at the time, but it absolutely, it really did work. And it really helped me a lot. I was, I've talked about this sort of idea multiple times throughout the course of the scuttlebutt is the idea of um, creating a piece of art. 
that you pour your soul into and you really kind of bear that. And that can be frightening. That can be, you know, empowering. That, that can be, uh, you can f feel like, no, I don't want that. That's mine. That's me. I, I want to hold that inside. Um, and at, at what, did you ever feel that at some point when you released that book? Like, boy, that, that really felt like I, I'm giving a piece of me to everybody and, and I have to like uh, uh, allow that to happen. You know, I feel it less with, with the, I think I've now processed the cancer stuff, but there are other things in my life that I'm not ready to write about, you know, that people mm -hmm. are like, oh, you should write that story. And I'm like, mm, that's mine. I'm not ready to talk about it yet, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's okay. Like you have to be ready for it. And at that point, apparently I was ready for it, but I was also seven years out at that point from having cancer, yeah. eight years out, you know? And so it wasn't so present and it was manageable. And the thing with writing is you do it slowly. You're writing bits at a time. So you're not getting inundated fully with everything in those moments. You can just take it one little 1000 words at a time. And it, it does make it a little easier to, to manage and to process those moments. Speaking like towards historical fiction, what got you interested in doing that particular genre? I've always been interested in history. I have a minor in history. I've always, when I was a little kid, I always said I wanted to be an archaeologist, a paleontologist, or an Egyptologist. I was like an ologist of some kind. Yeah. I ended up being none of them. I was like, the one thing I don't want to be is a teacher. Guess what I ended up being? <laughs> but, but I've always been fascinated with history because, but I've come to realize one of the real reasons I'm fascinated with history is because I love going places or imagining imagining what it would have been like back then for those people in those mm -hmm. times. I love trying to place myself into their bodies, into their brains, into their surroundings. And so I think I've always had a little bit of that inside of me. Mm -hmm. And then when it came to this particular story with historical fiction, it was my grandmother that actually inspired it. So my father told me that my grandmother had worked at a POW camp during World War II while my grandfather served and that she had built a friendship with an Italian priest there. And I was like, there are so many words there that don't make sense. I was like, POW <laughs> camp, Italian priest, what, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so that just made me want to dig, dig, dig and find out everything that I could about the topic. So when we were enemies is, is kind of like a based on a true story. Just, just that element. Yeah. Just, well, you know, the funny thing is, so many, by... yeah, exactly. So many movies now can say like inspired by a true story and it's yeah. just like, there's a little piece there. Anyway, we could say it. <laughs> yeah. Just a little tiny bit. So, right. but it was definitely inspired. That was the spark that kind of nestled in my brain that I always thought about. And I wasn't a writer yet when I heard that story, mm. you know, I was just an imaginer. I don't think that's a word, but that's perfect for me. Yeah. Yeah. So it just got my brain into a place of like, I want, I want to tell that story. I want to learn more. One of the things about history is I get really curious and I just want to know more. And so I think that was probably really part of the drive too, is I'm like, question mark, question mark, question mark. What, what happened here? Uh, what was probably the most, uh, 
interesting question that you had about that story that you had answered. Like as you started to research and dive into when we were, yeah. let's, let's pause and just sure. give the overall of what, when we were enemies is. So because sure. why don't we just dive into the story? Let's give it an overview of the story and then we can dive into like middle pieces of it here. Yeah. So it was a dual timeline. <clears throat> okay. Um, and so it's a modern day timeline and a timeline from 1943. Great. So the modern day timeline is, uh, so actually it's hard to, <laughs> I am so bad at this actually. So in 1943 is Vivian Santini and she ends up becoming this ultra famous star named Vivian Snow. And she has three, she has generations of fame that come after her, like her daughter, her grandsons, but her granddaughter is the one in present day that we focus on. And she does not like being in the spotlight. She's about to get married and her family's trying to convince her to do a documentary in the town where her grandmother grew up, which is Edinburgh, Indiana. And she, so then the back in time is Vivian Santini before she's famous. So she is working, she's an Italian, well, her parents are Italian immigrants and she is now being hired to work at the fairly new uh, Camp Atterbury, POW camp. And at that time, it's only Italian prisoners. The German prisoners haven't started coming in yet. And, um, and so she is, she ends up becoming an interpreter there mm -hmm. at the POW camp for the Italian prisoners. And that was a real to life POW camp in Indiana. Yes, absolutely. It is a real POW camp in Indiana. I've been there. They have an amazing museum there. They still have. So one of the things that surprised me that I found out is that, uh, because, these POW camps were really run strictly according to the Geneva Convention, that they were very, very, um, they were very willing to allow the prisoners there to practice their own religion. Hmm. And so these Italians came in and they, the, they were very Catholic. The Germans didn't have very much religion uh, in general when they came in, but the Catholics were like, we need a chapel. And so they petitioned at Camp Atterbury, this is a true story, to build a chapel called the Chapel in the Meadow. And so they had the chapel building committee that went and built this small chapel um, that was then a part of the POW camp that's still there now. So I was able to go and visit that. It was, there were beautiful, there was beautiful artwork done. Um, and so all of these artisans from Italy then took part in this project of, of masonry and in painting and all of those things. So that was really interesting for me. I was going to say, so the, uh, so going back to my previous question and the idea of uh, what questions you have that you find the most surprising answer to as you sort of yeah. dove into that, because not many people... I didn't know that there was a POW camp for Italians in Indiana. Um, so yeah. what what did you kind of dig up and find out that was surprising to you? Well, there were hundreds all over the U.S. Yeah. Um, so, and there were, I, I'm trying to remember the number. It's like, it's like 500,000 POWs were held in the United States at that time. And so my grandmother actually worked at a, at a POW camp in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. I did not end up using that as the setting um, because it, it's not there anymore. There wasn't as much established information. And also the book I wrote previous to this one was in Mississippi. So I was like, let's, let's jump outside of Mississippi. Um, but that's when I started looking and being like, what do I want to write about? I didn't have the full story yet. So when I found out about this chapel in the meadow, it really, 
it really kind of got my gears going a little bit more, Mm -hmm. but it, so yeah, the POW camps, I didn't know those existed. I didn't know either. And I'm going to sound for someone who's like, I minored in history. I didn't fully understand that Italy switched sides in the fall of 1943 Mm -hmm. and they surrendered in um, October of 1943. And then they swore their allegiance to the other side to the allied side in the same within that same timeline Mm -hmm. and it was a huge shift in the war at that time that italy was like we're going to come to this side now all of the men in that prison they couldn't be sent home but they were offered the opportunity to join the italian service unit and 90 percent of the italian soldiers that were held in the u.s then signed on for the Italian service unit. And then they they didn't they didn't serve by, you know, being they didn't go overseas, but they built ships. They mostly worked in shipyards mm-hmm. and were all shipped to like Boston, New York, um, those areas. And then the prisoners of war who decided, no, I'm gonna stick with being a fascist, they were sent to a POW camp in Texas where all of the most like intense both German and Italian prisoners were held. Interesting. Um, so we follow both of these. We follow Elise. Yes, she's modern day Elise. Modern day. Um, she's getting married. Uh, but I like what you said earlier also about sort of being able to place your mind into the era of where you're writing. So let's let's dive into Vivian, her grandmother, a bit. Sure. She's 19. She's yeah. working as a translator. She's uh, doing the USO, you know, hasn't yet become a star. There's very different roles for women in 1943. Um, how did you sort of help to develop her and develop that world to be as truthful as you could make it? Yeah, a lot of research, like a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of research, um, a lot of, you know, interviews and um, really just also like my grandmother has passed, but she was a storyteller and mm-hmm. she had told so so many stories of her time so I think that's really what it was I did a lot of reading on so she also Vivian was also part of the USO and so reading those rules and regulations was absolutely fascinating for me as well like understanding um so Vivian I actually my next book is the rest of her story is Vivian's story so I might kind of say some of the stuff that I learned from from that too but um, there was like an insane handbook that went along. There were several different, you could do your local USO or you could have a, a USO like be on a tour that was within the US or you could be on what was called the foxhole circuit and you would go overseas. And so like, and each of them had different rules but all of them were incredibly strict. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I had to get used to was the mindset of a woman in that time but also who was raised by strict and religious parents, you know, mm-hmm. like, and from a culture where the, they didn't speak English, her parents didn't speak English. Uh, my husband's parents are a hundred percent Sicilian. And he had this experience of being first generation American and talking about how he, as a young kid would have to help them like balance their checkbook or would have to, you know, interpret for them. And I I think that that was helpful to, to talk to him and talk to his family about that as well, what that experience is like. So uh, there is a, a, a secret in the book that we don't want to do spoilers for, but this is what Elise has got. Elise has agreed to her family say, yes, I'll do this documentary. 
uh, get married with my husband, Hunter. He's a, a wealthy businessman in New York. Um, as they sort of uh, start to plan this to be at the same church that Vivian was married at, we start to get, there starts to be some secrets that that start to bubble up. Um, yes. Can we speak a bit about that or maybe talk a bit around it? Maybe? Sure, sure, we can. It actually goes back to the the Italian priest that my grandmother became friends with. Mm -hmm. So this was the inspiration and I needed to figure out how to do it respectfully. But um, she, my grandmother, so in real life, had a this friend who went home back to Italy and they ended up corresponding with each other for the rest of their lives and he would write to her and draw pictures on postcards and because he was an artist and send them to her and um, so they developed this deep friendship so that is kind of the inspiration for this of like there was this there becomes a rumor that perhaps um Graceland, which is the famous daughter of Vivian Snow, is not her daughter. So oh, okay. that that's the big question. Right. Um, how is Elise dealing with this person that wants to be the you know out of the spotlight, doesn't want to be a part of it, uh, creating her character? It's interesting because now you know we look at celebrities now, we look at Hollywood now, we sort of know like you know that's a very different world. It's very like right. the Royals. You know, uh, we dive into it a bit with our like you know with our, our TV shows that we get to watch and different things like that. So it's very fascinating to the American mindset is, is Hollywood stardom. Right. Um, Elise is a part of that world, whether she likes it or not, but wants right. to step away from it, kind of maybe like Prince Harry, just get out of it. Um, yeah. How do you bring the reality to her world because that? that is a, a world that is very foreign to many people's minds is like this idea of celebrity. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, so the one, the first difficulty with Elise, and it always is when you're writing a story um, about a woman in particular, because I think people I've found, I've written books from male point of view and female point of view. And whenever I write from a female point of view, I get far more people being like, I didn't like her. She was too whatever, you know, like a dude can be like, uh, you know, you find Correct. him a little hot if he's yeah. a bad boy, you know, but yeah. Um, but with ladies, like it's hard to find that balance, especially with Vivian Snow being a, like she's very sweet and she's very old fashioned. So it was difficult finding that balance. But with Elise, the thing that I just really focused on is this idea that everybody wants fame or they think they want fame. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's Jim Carrey that said that he wished that everybody could be famous so that they realized that it didn't solve all of their problems. And I think that's kind of the theme that I looked at with, with her is mm -hmm. just, it can be a curse in a lot of ways. And she sees that, but the rest of her family doesn't. So she has kind of an insightful mind. And I, I think that the reason I enjoyed playing around with that idea is I think that we all have things that we think that one thing would, would fix my life or be jealous of other people who have more money, more fame, more whatever. But oftentimes it's not going to be fixing your life. You have to get to yourself to where you need to be with outside of you know the fame or the goals or whatever those things are and there's this theme of being stuck in the book yeah, yeah. uh can you speak a bit to that how does it at least feel stuck with where she's at does she feel stuck in her in her upcoming marriage in in her family you know is it just sort of where she's at in life she's imprisoned by her family's fame okay. you know i don't think she feels stuck in her future marriage she chose hunter she um, she lost her 
fiance before who, who died of cancer. And so I think there's just some mourning there, but she feels stuck because she can never fully get away from her name, from her parentage because her father is also famous her siblings are famous and so she's like what do I do with this everybody looks at me as though like good good for her poor little rich girl I think she says Mm -hmm. um but it's this she's stuck by that but Vivian feels stuck in 1943 by a lot you know by her father's expectations her mother is mentally ill and is no longer in the home she's in a she's in a sanatorium so she's caring for her family now she's caring for her younger sister the expectations of her time where she's expected to only want one thing which is to get married and have a family and so having ambitions outside of that is a lot to expect she has religious expectations of being a per- being perfect or that's what she feels at least you know so she feels very stuck in her town in her life in her family with expectations and all of those things how uh, how as a writer do you uh, there's a lot of characters and you yeah. want to make each one of them feel human you want them to have sort of realistic uh life goals and that that as you're reading them and their and their their drive their motivations all of these need to feel like they are built from somewhere uh yeah. How do you how do you dive into that as a writer and really because even just listening to you speak uh, about the characters you know them back forward every which way every motivation everything they have all comes and stems from something and you really have to pour a lot into that yeah and I think you'll understand this as an actor because mm-hmm. I I often say that improv is writing on stage that is your first draft you're drafting up there but writing is also improvising on the page except for you get to edit it you know and so when you are truly getting into a character or into a scene the I think that the best actors are actually finding something within themselves that they can relate to and then applying it to the character you're sinking I it sounds weird but it's like you're when I write I try and sink into my characters so that I can actually write from their perspectives understand their mindsets and whether they are right or wrong in what they're doing I have to understand why they think they're right or wrong in what they're doing you know and that was huge for me because when I wrote Wreckage I came from a very uh, kind of cloistered religious upbringing Mm -hmm. and I had to change my mindset to remember these individuals are not you. Like Mm -hmm. I had to give myself permission for them to make different choices than I would make in my life. And that was very freeing creatively once I was able to do that. Yeah, that's got to be difficult because you have your own set of ideas of I would do this. But this person with this upbringing might choose this other path that I don't agree with at all. And I have to be okay with that. How how often did you, do you play with that, that clay of that character? And as you get into the writing and, and, and make that decision, do you go back and go, ah, that's not quite where I want to go and change that. Do you ever, do you ever find yourself in that situation? All the time, all the time. (laughs) So in order right now, I write on, like, I will give them a pitch and then I'll give them a synopsis and I'll give the first 50 pages. But the synopsis is super detailed. It's like a 10 page synopsis, Mm -hmm. but you know, people are like, how do you write like that? 
you know, knowing every single step that's going to happen and still feel authentic. And it's because there's flexibility there. Mm -hmm. Like oftentimes I'll get to a point in the story and be like, oh, that's not what Vivian would do here. I planned this out wrong. What would she do? Mm -hmm. And it, it sounds a little out there, like, but you're making up people. So, um, but I also don't like manipulating them. I like really trying to think, what would they do next? And it changes all the time. And especially as you develop the character and get to know the character better, uh, they become a little bit a part of you, you know? Oh, absolutely. And, and that sort of leads me to this question of, of messing with readers' expectations. Because, you know, everybody famously obviously now knows like Game of Thrones. We got to the final season. We loved it all the way up to that point. And then suddenly everything just went awry and, and right. why because like a lot of the characters did something that we were like wait a second that doesn't make any sense to based on what we built but there is this idea of messing with some expectations of what the readers how do you how do you throw that curveball but still keep it truthful and authentic yeah and i think you know i have my opinions about game of thrones <laughs> because i read the books up until you know Same. they no longer were and it was just the show mm -hmm. and i just think i truly believe that it went so far off the rails because they were no longer going by the slow pacing that Martin had set forth, you know, like yeah. if you've read those books, you learn about every type of boiled leather and every type of food they're eating is the slowest, slowest thing. And then you get to that final season and it just rushes through. But anyway, that's a whole different thing. Oh, wait, um, we could go on another whole podcast about it. I know, there I know. have been many already. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I won't bore you with that. But, um, but I, I do know that it depends on the kind of writer you are because you have to build trust with your readers mm -hmm. and you cannot, you cannot change completely who your character is just to serve the plot. You can't do that. So if you're writing a plot that doesn't make sense with who your character is, then you're just being manipulative mm -hmm. and you're just doing it for shock factor and readers feel that and it doesn't feel authentic and you're not going to gain a fan base doing that so they might be like whoa but i don't know that they'll trust you again to come back for your next book you know you have to assume that readers are very smart and are, yes. and are empathetic to what's going on on the page and can sort of develop that feeling of like is this right is this you know is this where right. i'm yeah um well it uh, i'll just say one more thing about that it reminds me of um what is it? Sixth Sense. At mm. the end of it, you go, oh my gosh, sorry, spoiler, he's dead the whole time. You go, oh my gosh, he's dead the whole time. And then you go back and go, oh, that totally makes sense because of this, 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 and this. It all makes sense that he's dead. You don't go back and say, it doesn't make sense that he's dead because of all these other things. So that's the thing. If you're going to have a big twist, you have to have everything else build up to it that you're like, oh, wow, that makes sense. If Emily Bleeker just ruined six cents for you, you can send hate mail to Sean at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Uh <laughs> when I was a child so you all should have seen it <laughs> uh that is something interesting about having readers so you've had you know you, you have a series of books now um how do you how do you sift through the noise of reviews and really stay true to yourself and your convictions as a writer you know once you start to even get a little sense of like what readers are saying about you know what you poured your heart and soul into yeah, uh, that's a really good question. There are two sides to that. So the there's one side that is um, all of the best writers that I know 
take feedback. They want to know what works and what doesn't work. But it's also how much feedback you let in and from what sources. Mm -hmm. And so that's the other side of it. So a lot of writers I know read no reviews outside of like trade reviews or things from like trusted other authors. I I have been told that I'm a bit of a masochist because I like reading some reviews. I go to the reviews for the first month or so. And I've told myself, don't trust the five stars. Don't trust the one stars. Look at those middle couple of stars, see what they all are saying. And that's where your growth lies. Hmm. That's where you can figure out maybe if all of these people and those middle ones are saying similar things, that's something I need to work on as a writer. Mm -hmm. But I'm all about a growth mindset. I know I'm not perfect. I know I can get better. So I crave that. I, I want some, at least. I, I'm not a glutton for punishment. So I do stop at some point, but but I that's really what I focus in on. If you were reflective on your writing and where you're at now uh, after writing several novels, uh, what would you say is like the one thing that you're like, I, I really wanna work on this on the next one? Well, constantly the thing that I'm working on is like honing my prose. Mm -hmm. So making it, I, I tend to be verbose. And so I'm trying to learn how to, and then it go, I go through and edit it and I have other people help me edit it, but that is definitely something that is a personal goal for myself. The goal that I had before these two books that I feel like I'm getting better at was dialogue. Um, I really wanted to work on dialogue. I think improv has helped me a lot with dialogue, by the way. Mm -hmm. It has really helped me feel more natural on the page. Um, so I definitely have writing goals constantly of what I'm working on personally, reading books about it, like reading other, other pieces, other authors and being like, well, what works for them and how do I do that? I'm going to dive down a rabbit hole. Sure. When you are doing improv now, do you ever try to take on any of the characters you're currently writing and just see if you can like be them on stage and just develop them in the moment? That's an amazing idea. And no, I haven't, but maybe I should. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great idea. Nope. I've never done that. That right, is Next time, throw Vivian on and just see what comes out. Toss her out there. Yeah. Everyone in the scene is going to be so confused. Exactly. I'm going to do it. <laughs> So the next one's a sequel. Uh, have you done sequels before? And if not, like why decide to do a sequel for uh, When We Were Enemies? Yeah, yeah. It's, suppo it's supposed to be a standalone that is a companion to uh, When We Were Enemies. Um, but it is the rest of Vivian's story because Vivian's story ends in When We Were Enemies right before she becomes famous. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I really wanted to tell the rest of her story and in fact, I knew I needed to tell the rest of her story. So I was like, if they don't want, if my publisher doesn't want it, then I'll publish it myself because mm -hmm. I knew that the rest, I knew there were going to be what happens next. What about Vivian's story? We want to hear more. And there already has been. So I'm really grateful that they were willing to let me go down that rabbit hole and to really figure out what happened in her life because I think she's an interesting and compelling character and I've really enjoyed figuring out what happened throughout the rest of her life that got you know my editor said to me um that Gracelyn which is Vivian's daughter 
Elise's mom. Mm -hmm. Um, she's, she's kind of a narcissist, you know, a very narcissistic woman. Mm -hmm. And, um, she's like, I couldn't understand why, how kindness skipped a generation. And she's like, and then I read this new book that I wrote and I finally, I understood why she got to that place. And that was like really satisfying to me that it filled in some of those gaps. Do you find it uh, easier, harder to write from a male point of view or a female point of view? I love writing from a male point of view. I haven't done it in a few years, but I really enjoy that sense of deep empathy, you know, for a different life experience. And um, so I, I do both. I think, so I have three boys and then a girl. And when I was pregnant with my fourth, I didn't find out what I was having because um, every, and I told everyone, I'm like, well, all of my boys are so different. No matter what I have, it's going to be a different person. I don't care if it's yeah. a boy or a girl. And then um, like, so that's kind of how I feel. Cause I, I had my daughter, she was different. Surprise. She would have been anyway. Um, so I, I feel that way about my characters where they're all so entirely unique that gender obviously is a part of me learning about who they are, but it is not, it's not what makes them entirely who they are. And another rabbit hole, have, have your kids reached an age where they realize, uh, mommy's an author and they like read one of your books yet, or is it like still something that they haven't quite understood yet? No, no. My oldest is 19. So okay. yeah. yeah, I have a 19, 19, 17, 15 and 12. They all have been with me through this process, you yeah. know, and, um, but none of them have read one of my books. So I will tell them you asked. And so <laughs> maybe someone that. will. <laughs> That's nighttime storytelling, you know, reading. Exactly. Um, and on the flip side, we talked a bit earlier about, you know, sort of going through the difficulties of having cancer, sort of the, the grief, loss, these types of feelings that obviously come up uh, and being able to write about that. There obviously had to be the flip side of that coin of like intense love uh, from your family, support. Uh, where does that kind of come out in your writing too, I'm sure? Ooh, you've got some good hard hitting questions. I, I think that motherhood is an incredibly intense experience for most people, but for I, I think for myself, it was something I always wanted. It was something that I've really found meaningful in my life and uh, put as a priority. So I do think that there are themes of motherhood that go into almost every book that I write. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with uh, sisters, like my sister and I have a close bond. And um, so I think that those connections, but I, I also have a mother who is mentally ill and I had to step up for during my life. And so like those, those feelings also come in there as well, the bittersweetness of it all. Right. So, and the interesting thing about love, <laughs> if you don't mind me getting philosophical, please, I love that. that. <laughs> okay. So I, my first novel uh, this is a lot. My first novel came out when I I was about to, I was just about to go through a divorce and it was not a great relationship. It had not been a very a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I understood even what love was when I wrote Wreckage, but it's a love story. Mm -hmm. And so it, I wrote what I hoped love was. 
And now, many, many years later, I have found a healthy relationship. I'm remarried and I'm like, ah, oh, this, thank goodness, this is what love is, you know? Yeah. Like it, it's definitely not written with a sense of like love is perfect, even though people say that, but it's not, you know, but it is this sense of like balancing reality and also what wreckage was what I hoped it could be. I hope that I write it now as what I've experienced. Do you ever go back and, and reread certain passages or things that you wrote in, in the earlier books, wreckage and whatnot to, to sort of see where you've developed those ideas about love or about faith or, you know, different things? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And my faith journey has definitely progressed over years too. So yeah, absolutely. I have definitely, I don't always go back very much, mostly because I have such a, a brain of you can do better that when I go back into reading stuff that I've done in the past, that I'm like, oof, I wish I could change that, you know? Yeah, right. But I think I see it through other people's eyes when they read my old older books my original ones and now and like talking talking to people who have read both like I think I see it more through that like the evolution of those ideals and and still the authenticity of those earlier ones I I do I am surprised going back to those that I'm like hey you know I thought I was just making this up <laughs> but it, I think that it's somewhat accurate now, what do you hope? Obviously, I'm from a, a veterans organization. Yes. Uh, we have a, a mostly, you know, male uh, uh, group here um, yes. that will probably be listening in. Um, what do you hope that they take away from when we were enemies? Should they be able to pick it up? Um, I think the thing that I love the most about when we were enemies is this idea of change. Mm -hmm. um, it is called when we were enemies because of the the Italian prisoners switching sides. It's just the summer that Vivian and Trombello, which is the male lead in that pastime, were enemies. Mm -hmm. And then they become allies and they become lifelong friends. And I love that idea that we can change, we can evolve, and that we can um, come closer to one another if both sides are willing to to see things differently. So I think that was the most touching part of the research that I did for this book mm -hmm. was seeing the change that happened, you know, when when people were able to open their hearts and minds um, on both sides. Excellent. Okay, so you have four kids. You can't pick a favorite. How do you pick your favorite book that you've written? Well, I get asked this a lot. I do. I won't pick a favorite kid, but I will pick a favorite book. Oh, oh! don't tell the <laughs> I book. Will. I'll cover their ears and I'll say it. Um, I think I wreckage will always be my favorite because it was my first and it, I spent three and a half years with it. I dreamt about it. You know, I tenderly raised it. And um, so I think it'll always have a special place in my heart. And I, I really do also love when we are enemies. I would say that's my second favorite, mm -hmm. the love story in it just really touches me the whole and that it has to do with my grandma who I found out after she passed away had uh, tried to be a writer. She I found a whole oh. bunch of like rejected um, stories that she had sent into magazines and stuff with rejection slips. So I'm like, Oh, oh my gosh. Now I get wow. to do it, you know? Yeah. yeah, picking up that torch and carrying it. Yeah. Um, that's beautiful. Uh, where can people pick up When We Were Enemies? 
when we are enemies you can find it it's uh anywhere online so barnes and noble amazon target um anywhere you get your books excellent well hopefully our listeners uh will find this i uh, will put links right down there in the description please click on i'll put your website you also have a blog is there anything else on your website that you'd like to promote Nope, but I have emilybleaker.com, which has lots of links for you. Um, if you're into social media, come visit me. I sometimes post silly things. Um, I'm guessing if you're on TikTok, um, I a lot of cat videos. So this much writing, this much cat. So just be warned. Well, the internet is for cats. And you did say in your bio that you have a, a kitten muse, Hazel. Is it still yeah. kitten or is it cat muse? She's always a kitten to me. Always, always. yeah. That's wonderful. Emily, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me and for your truth and for uh, dealing with my, my fun nasally voice that I got to put on for today. It's not an accent. I didn't learn how to do this. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's beautiful. This book, When We Were Enemies, is beautiful. I hope our listeners will pick it up. Uh, I wish you nothing but the best and, and look forward to this the companion piece coming up next year. Next year. Excellent. Uh, my best to you. And I'd love to give you the final word here. Well, I just thank you so much for having me on. This was a delightful chat. You got my brain going. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio Health. Uh, Tobacco Free Adagio Health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. We've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health, so they want people to quit. Uh, they have classes, nicotine replacement therapy, and a popular quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. And finally, Tobacco Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured Tobacco Free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, it was one, two wonderful conversations. So I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, Tobacco Free Adagio Health, for your support.